How complex is animal communication? Should we think of the barks, chirps, and growls that we hear really as language? And are bird and whale songs socialized, or are they simply hard-coded somewhere deep within the genome? In the following conversation, I discuss animal communication and cognition with Irene Pepperberg, former Harvard academic and current president of the Alex Foundation. She's best known for her work with their African grey parrots, Alex, Arthur, Griffin, and Athena. Irene uses novel training techniques to teach her parrots how to communicate, and what she's been able to accomplish is pretty remarkable, from spelling and counting, to solving logical puzzles, to asking questions about their surroundings and even themselves, to competing with five-year-old children on certain cognitive tests. The discussion begins with practical questions about the bird's abilities and how training is done, before diving into more philosophical questions about how animals might see the world, self-awareness and personhood, as well as animal morals and ethics. I hope you enjoy. Escaped sapiens. So to start with, why is understanding the cognitive abilities of animals important? So, so in particular, you know, what would it mean if uh, researchers were able to show definitively that monkeys, birds, whales, intelligent animals were able to use language in the way that uh, a linguist would define language? Well, what would that mean? It suggests something about the continuity of behavior and the evolutionary background and the idea that there is a central evolutionary basis for our communication systems. Now, so far, nothing that we have in the scientific literature shows that animals have a communication system as complicated as that of human language. But they all have communication systems that work very, very nicely for them and that are sufficient to their needs. Whether the abilities are more complicated and we are just too stupid as humans to figure out their systems, that's something that's quite possible, okay? I mean, I joke with my students that in terms of studying animal language, we are not that much different from, say, Martians that came down and play, you know, two tapes outside of a movie theater. And one tape says free beer, and people are just going to go, oh, that's kind of nice, and they'll amble out for it. And the other one says fire, and we all go, you know, screaming crazy. Um, now, we are a bit more sophisticated than that, but again, we really are limited in what we can do in terms of understanding what animals are, are communicating about and how they're doing it. And it's a really exciting topic. So what was your original motivation then? You've been working for uh, some decades now with uh, parrots. What was your original motivation and how, how has your motivation changed and what's sort of your ultimate goal at this point? Right. Well, my original goal was literally to establish a very complicated two-way communication between myself and these birds. My idea was that unlike apes, they could talk. They seemed to be very intelligent and it would seem that, you know, any, any creature on the face of the earth that you would want to do this with, it would be an animal that could literally talk back to you. Um, there were a lot of reasons, many of which are too complicated to get into, but over the course of the years, it became more a matter of using this interspecies communication to examine their cognitive abilities. Because it's, much easier to literally ask an animal to do a task or to co communicate its abilities 
by speaking to them than it is by trying to have them press buttons or things like that. Um, sign language, for example, is also excellent because it's an, another very fluid communication system and very informative in the sense that it is open-ended. Okay, so when, you, when you're trying to communicate with an animal through a computer, there are just so many buttons mm -hmm. that can be tapped, you know, from both of you. Whereas once you have some kind of a repertoire, you can embellish upon it and you can use what you have in more innovative ways. And that's what made the voc the idea of using a vocal system, you know, so exciting for me. But but why did you fix on African grey parrots? Was there a reason? Are they particularly intelligent, or were they just available, or what? What was the original goal okay, there? So, um, when you look at the literature, there had already been work on the intelligence of these birds. So, if you look back to the work of Otto Kuhler in the forties and fifties. He had done a lot of work on the communication skills of these birds and on their cognitive abilities. And so that made these birds a very, you know, good starting point because we already had some baseline data. And they also have a particularly different vocal tract system. And it turns out now we know possibly a slightly different neural system, okay, for acquiring vocalizations, which allows them to be more more easily adapted to working with humans. Huh. Is is that is uh do you understand why a bird with such a small brain is able to do such complicated behaviors? Do you like you know, because if you compare birds to say a uh, chimpanzee, the birds you work with are much smaller, right? But they're able to do pretty incredible things. Why is that? It's not the size of the brain, absolutely. It's the relative size of the brain compared to the rest of the body, and particularly the relative size of this cortical area. Now, in primates, the cortex is the part of the brain that's so-called the seat of intelligence. And if you look at the relative size of the parrot's cortical-like area, it is enormous and it is incredibly densely packed with neurons so there's actually studies out there that show that the density is about that of the non-human primates mm -hmm. and the relative size is about that of the non-human primates so that they've got all the possible neural what do you want to call computing powder that they need to do this so that they have the same number of connections and neurons. Do, do they have a higher density of neurons per volume of, of yes. brain? I see. And connections, yes. I see. In in the wild, do they is is are their vocalizations socialized or is it genetic? So so the bird song, for instance, in this species and other species, they learn it. I mean, not all, okay, not all birds learn their songs. Um, to be technical, they're the sub that do not learn their songs. And then they're the Asin songbirds that do learn their songs. And then there's the parrots, which are different from most Asins because they are what are called open-ended learners. And they continue to learn throughout their entire lives. Whereas most Asins, not all, but most Asins 
learn during the first year or two of life. Mm-hmm. But the parrots are completely open-ended learners. Are the other lyre birds and, and these sort of mimicking birds also on the same level as parrots in terms of intelligence? We don't know about intelligence, but in terms of vocal abilities, yes. Hmm. In the in the wild, the how how does the complexity of of what of the vocalizations compare to what you can actually train them in the lab? We are learning about that. You know, that's all I can say. I mean, one of my students in the nineteen what, around nineteen ninety five was out in Africa, just collecting vocalizations. Um, she couldn't do playbacks. We didn't have the equipment, and it wasn't safe, actually. They were chased by machete-wielding poachers, and we had to end the study. Um, Wait, what? <laughs> but, yeah, this was, and this was in 1995. You can imagine what it's like now. Um, but the point was is she filled up an entire six-, seven-foot-long table with you know sonograms, pictures of their vocalizations, of different vocalizations, and she could basically say, well, these are affiliative and these are aggressive and these are fear. You know, she can make, she was able to simply in the, given the basic, you know, where, when she took them and, and what she was watching, what behavior she was watching when she took the, the you know, she acquired these vocalizations, she could get a basic idea, but what they actually meant, you know, that you need playbacks for. So there are huge, huge numbers of these vocalizations and how how carefully they could be separated from one another, we don't know. There's study on a different, totally different species uh, called Forpus, a kind of an Amazonian parrot. And it turns out they have, they seem to have individual names for each other. Okay, so there's definitely individual recognition amongst these birds. They have their own little signature whistles. So, um, you know, the comp- we just don't know how complex their vocalizations are in the wild. Do your parrots know their own names? Do they use their own names or do they have their own vocalizations for the names? Um, I don't know about the latter. They certainly know their names. Okay. Huh. So. Uh, but, but do they use, so for example, would Alex be called Alex by the other, by Griffin, is it? No, was it? yes. Yeah. Well, they didn't use each, the names for each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you could, you know, I can see out of the corner of my eye what Athena is doing. And I could say, stop Athena. And she knows immediately that she needs to stop that behavior. (laughs) So I I guess dogs also know their own names to a certain extent. So it's not surprising that, uh, but, but um, so what's special about language? So what would you have to see in what what would you have to see in the behavior of a bird? What would you have to see in this list of vocalizations that you collected in order to oh. say this animal has language? That's an hour long lecture. Okay. <laughs> um, basically, you know what you and I are doing now involves language. And no matter how many years I would have worked with Alex, he would have never gotten to the point that we could have this kind of a conversation. Okay. And I mean, that's a sort of a a very generic type of explanation that it's just the complexity, the fact that we can talk about, you know, the past, we can talk about the future. We can talk about imaginary things. All right. There's, there's this level of complexity that, you know, so far, non-humans have not acquired. 
Hmm. That's not to say that it's impossible and that we just haven't figured out the best ways to teach them those things. But, I mean, the level is just, you know, quite, quite complicated when you're trying to, to, to explain, you know, what you would need. Because, I mean, you can look at, you know, years ago, um, Altman and um, uh, Hockett came up with, you know, basic 13 different things that language has, and then they had a checklist whether animal behaviors, you know, checked against this. But that doesn't get to the meat of it, which is you can make check all those boxes, but the animal still can't do what you and I are doing. With with your bird specifically, do you do you suspect it, it sounds like you suspect that uh just there's a mental gap there that can't be bridged or, or is there also a component which is just the interface how well you, the uh, parrots for example can vocalize and they're spending so much effort in developing the human words that you know that overrides that you know they have so much overhead in just making the yeah. sounds that they can't communicate is that a component well that's a component but i you know we just don't know the answer to that question we just simply don't know the answer to that question i mean in the wild how much do they need to talk about the past? How much do they need to talk about the future? Um, you know, we don't know. We don't know how important that is for them. And if they did need that, then I'm guessing that their wild communication systems would have a way of doing it and that we could map onto it. But we don't know that. Mm-hmm. So how does your training repertoire work, you know, or regime work rather? When when you get a new chick and, and you need to start uh, teaching this new chick, chick how to uh, speak, what, what, what do you do? What, how do you go about it? All right. The first thing we do is we find the kinds of things that the bird is really, really interested in, okay, like some toys that it particularly likes to play with. So in Alex's case, he really loved to chew paper. Now, and aside is that making a puff sound without lips is really, really tough. So, you know, trying to teach him to say paper was, you know, as his first label was probably not the best thing. But, you know, he did learn to say air, okay? And we kept it with that until he learned how to use esophageal speech and actually burp out the puff. But once we find out what they want, then we use a modeling technique. And this was initially developed by Dietmar Tote, who was working in Curler's lab. Okay, that's how I learned about this. We've adapted the technique somewhat, but the basic idea is the same, in that two humans demonstrate to the bird the types of behavior we want it to learn. So let's say we want, you know, I want you to learn, the you're the parrot, and I want you to learn the word paper. And you really want to chew on this. I mean, you're, you know, as soon as I show this, you are just, you know, excited about it. So I'm sitting there with my student and I show it to her. She's the model for the bird's behavior and the bird's rival for my attention. That's how it gets the model rival or MR technique term. And I show her the thing and I say, what's this? And she goes, paper. And I go, that's right. And I give it to her. And she goes, paper, paper. And she starts tearing it apart. And the bird is like, oh, man, you know. Is watching so closely. And she, you know, she then chose it to me and I say paper and I get to play with it. And the reason we exchange the roles of model, rival and trainer is so the bird sees that one person is, isn't always the questioner and the other the respondent, but that's an interactive process. But every once in a while, I'll show it to her. And instead of saying paper, she goes, right. And I go, no, you're wrong. And I take it away. 
Now, this is important because the bird sees that not every weird new sound causes transfer of the object, but it has to be a particular sound. And then after a while, we'll show it to the bird and ask the bird to say something. And of course, it's not going to say paper right away because as you, you know, understood, they have to learn how to control a series of muscles and, and parts of their body. So they have to learn all the muscles in the trachea, which pr produces, well, the first thing is the syrinx, which is the, their sound box, sort of like our larynx. And that's at the base of their trachea by the lungs. And then they have to learn how to control the trachea, which is about 10% difference in the vocalizations production. They, like us, they have to learn how to control their, you know, we, we do our tongue up and down and back and forth. Think about E versus ah, and your mouth and everything in there. They have to learn how to control that too. So their tongues, big fat tongues, and the beak opening and closing, okay, and the glottics and the larynx that they have, they have to learn how to control all that. And probably something about the, you know, nasal passages maybe as well. So there's a lot they have to learn, but they'll make some kind of sound initially. So, you know, for example, when they were learning key, Alex would go E, okay, and you reward that initially because that's a, you know, it's a sound that they can make and it's related to the sound you want. So you reward that. And then over time, you basically shape it into the K sound and you get the key. Huh. Are you, once you've trained one bird, can you use them as the rival for other birds or not? Yes, but it's not easy. Okay, so it was only at the end of Alex's life that he finally agreed to stop interrupting Griffin sessions and actually work as a model. In, because in, there's in a dominance, session. there's yes. a dominance hierarchy. Or I yes. see. But but would would Griffin and uh, sit there and just watch the lessons that Alex had and learn sort of passively or not? Griffin did learn some things by watching Alex. Yes. So there was a time where we were training Griffin. We were training Alex on seven. Okay, which was hard because of the the sound itself wasn't easy. But he had for six, and the v he had from five, but it's still a v. So. You know, it's a, it's a hard time. So he's going s one for seven <laughs> at that point. Okay. Until so he, he can could, count then? Yes, he did. He could count. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing we could But so he, he did that by himself. He said six and one is seven rather than just saying seven. Yes, because that's the way he, he knew where he was headed, to put it bluntly. And that's the best he could do at that point. Okay. So he, because those were the labels in his repertoire. And then after a while, he started saying seven, which actually more like a b, okay, but he's saying seven. But while we were doing this, this one, I hear from the corner of the lab, this other little one from Griffin, <laughs> who was imitating Alex. But Alex was, he would interrupt Griffin when we would train Griffin. So we'd say, you know, Griffin, what color? And he would, Alex would sit there and go, no, tell me what shape. And Griffin would look at me and look at Alex and literally shrug his little birdie shoulders and go, do I answer him? Do I answer you? I'm just going to be quiet and not say anything. So do you or, think the interaction between the two stunted uh, Griffin's learning process? Or Yes, yes, very much, very much. I see. So, so they're not social in the same way that humans are really. Well, there was a dominance issue, okay? I mean, Alex had been an only bird for 15 years, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And used to being in charge. And then this little thing comes in that's getting all of our attention. It's, you know, it was very, very hard. When you were teaching them numbers, did it become easier with each successive number? You know, once you, you taught like two, three, did they get very quickly? The, uh... That's a very important question because children do. Okay. Um, children learn, okay, they learn one versus many. There must be, there. I forget, they were like about two years old when they start learning one versus many. It takes them nine more months to learn one versus two versus many. And another five months to learn one versus two versus three versus many. But around that time, they're learning a number line. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you ask a three-year-old to count, they'll go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you say, oh, my child can count. Well, they understand it about as well as they learn the alphabet when they think LMNOP is one letter. Okay. But they've got this number line, but somewhere around four years old, some children earlier, some children later, but somewhere between three and a half and four, they start figuring out that these, this one, two, three that they've learned that actually means something with respect to objects and this random lumber line are connected. And about the time they learn four, they get it. And almost no child that is normal, okay, in terms of development, has to be taught five. Okay, they get it. Okay, it's one, two, three, four, five is the next one in the series, and they understand it. So is this true for animals? And the answer is, well, it wasn't true for the apes, and it didn't seem to be true for Alex, but the problem with Alex, there were two problems with Alex. One, we didn't teach him the numbers in order. We first taught him shapes, because shapes were fun to chew apart. So he learned three-corner and four-corner for a triangle and a square. Huh. Okay, three-corner, four-corner, okay. And so when we started doing numbers, well, the easiest thing to teach him was three and four, right? Because he already could say three-corner and four-corner. So we taught him about three things and four things, and then we taught him two and five, Mm-hmm. And then we taught him six and one. So he learned them in a you know really weird order. So we couldn't make the exact comparisons with the children. But he didn't learn them any more quickly than he learned the other ones. And this was actually the basis of a really important study I did with Susan Carey, who worked with children on these number studies. Um, and... You know, she challenged me as to what was going on here. And I said, well, you know, as I said before, he has to learn how to produce all these sounds. So maybe it's not that he doesn't understand the number concepts, but he's just trying to say these words that are really hard. When you, when you so taught... Let me, okay. let me, let me, let sure. me keep yeah. going on with this. So, so what we did was we decided to teach him the labels seven and eight, totally separate from numbers. Okay. By this time, he also knew Arabic numerals. So we used the seven and eight to train him. Now, he didn't know what they meant. I mean, with just seven and eight, it could be 10 and 20. I mean, you know, he didn't even know they were numbers probably at that point. Okay. And then we tested him by giving him, once he could say them appropriately, and we test first trained him, because he also 
had learned the ordinality of his numbers, so we trained him that six was less than seven was less than eight. So again, but this only meant that he knew that seven and eight were bigger than six. Again, they could have been 20 or 20 or, you know, 200 or whatever. Then the first time we showed him seven things, we asked him how many. He looked at it and he looked at it and he went seven. And we added one and he went eight. So he, so he inferred. He inferred it. He did understand it the way young children do and got it quickly, whereas the apes did not. They took them just as learn, long to learn seven and eight as it took them to learn five and six. Why do you think it is that a bird would find that easier? Is it because they live in larger flocks or is it because, you know, I guess when you look at birds in the sky, you can actually pick out their silhouettes perhaps and it could do, be. do you have any idea? It could be, but I think it probably has more to do with their vocalizations because, for example, there are certain birds like chickadees with the alarm call, okay? When they go, when they see something that's nervous, they go chickadee, dee, 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 dee. And the number of Ds tells you how scary the thing is. <laughs> so um, it might be for these birds that there's something about their vocalizations, the number of times they repeat their vocalizations, or the number of times they repeat parts of their vocalizations might have something that has real meaning for them and therefore they need to recognize number in a sense that you know apes that just have basically you know they have their certain calls and things um may not and and so you had taught alex the, the first parrot that you had um how to say well there, he would say uh three corner and four corner for triangles and squares. Mm -hmm. When he learnt the number five, could you then show him a picture of a pentagon and he would say five corner? Would he make up that word? Yes. Wow, okay. So it, it shows that he really did understand these, con they, they were genuine concepts in his mind, not just, yeah. he, he wasn't, um, I mean, he couldn't have been um, mimicking that because you had never said five corner in front of him. Did, right. well, did you I, make sure not to do that? Or Yeah. I mean, what happened was, okay, um, I'm trying to remember back. I mean, probably what happened was we asked him what shape and he probably said corner. Okay. Because he knows that, you know, there was corners and he probably didn't know what we wanted us to set, do. And then we probably asked him how many corner. Mm -hmm. And then he probably went, oh, five corner. Okay. I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. I can't really remember. Because that was so mm -hmm. many years ago. Oh, that'd be really interesting to know. Yeah, I have to ha go back and look at some of the data we have, but I really don't remember. Did you have to keep, I, I guess you were keeping meticulous records of your, in, you, you must just have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours with these parrots recording everything. Is that the case? Or? Um, we couldn't record everything because transcribing everything would you know it takes you twice as twice as long to transcribe something as it does to you know do it but we do have you know we did okay i lost many of these tapes in a flood okay um but we did have hours and hours and hours of a lot of this documentation not every single thing of course but a lot and you got to remember we were starting this stuff in the 70s i mean mm -hmm. you know taping was not like 
what we're doing now. <laughs> I mean, you know, we started, when I started, it was real to real. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how many people had a decent real to real tape recorder in those days? You know, just being able to afford a Nagra, you know, was half your mm-hmm. grant. Um, and then we got on to things where you could get, you know, cassette tape recorders that were reasonably decent. Okay. And so we could start mm-hmm. making a lot more of that stuff. Video. I mean, video was like this huge camera that was, you know, I mean, you know, twice mm-hmm. as big as my head. Um, to bring in when we started it. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't just put your little iPhone right up there and, and take a, you know, a clip. I just realized I'm thinking about, so you said to say seven, he said six and one or six. Did, did he? He just went one. Okay. So, but he didn't say and or like, so and and all these are, these are complicated concepts, right? Did he have a concept of end and or, or uh, I guess on the emotional side, did he, did he understand, you know, I, I, I've heard that he said, sorry, did he understand that that meant sorry or? <laughs> okay. Well, something like, sorry. Okay. He understood it was a contextually applicable vocalization. So if he did something and I, you know, went, ow, you know, and he could hear from me that, you know, he bit and it was too hard. I mean, usually they give you a little warning bite before they really crunch. And if he, you know, went too hard and went, ow, you know, he'd go, sorry, because, you know, that would, that would completely, and he said it in this cute little voice, sorry, okay, that it would, you know, completely break, <laughs> you know, the, the interaction. But um, did he understand it? Not in the sense that it there was any contrition, mm-hmm. okay? He understood it was the right thing to say in that circumstance, I mean, I joke, it was kind of like my ex-husband who would, you know, say sorry, and then he would do the same stupid thing, you know, the next time the opportunity (laughs) appeared. Um, No contrition involved. But um, anyway, the point was, so in terms of his phonemes, I think that's what you were getting to. Okay. We were teaching him phonemes at that point. So he was beginning to learn phonemes and he had began to have some concept of the phonemes because there's this wonderful little story Okay, when I was at the Media Lab. And um, the Media Lab is an amazing place. We, they did all sorts of, of stuff. And twice a year, they had what was basically demos for all the companies that help support the research. And so everybody would show what they had been working on for the last six months. And we had all this stuff arranged because we had been working on all sorts of cool stuff with the parrots, um, you know, something called... We called it Netscape Explore, a kind of a web browsing system for the birds and all this kind of stuff. And when they came to the lab, the people there said they wanted to see Alex do his phonemes. <laughs> so I'm going like, okay, you're the guys paying the bills, whatever. So I put, you know, refrigerator letters. That's what we're using, but used with children. I put them on the tray. They're different colors. And the task was things like, what color is s- and if it were blue, he'd say blue. And I'd say, that's right. And we'd reward him with the nut. Is that for six? Sorry? It's just the s sound for the S. Okay. Oh, for the just, S. Okay. Right, okay. Yeah, okay. Or it was, you know, what sound is purple? And it could be an N. So we'd go N. Okay. Mm. And we, okay. So we did this. But, you know, these people are with you only for like five or 10 minutes. I mean, it's because they're going on to, you know, everybody in the, the entire lab. 
So we start this off and I don't, I'm not giving him his nuts as his reward because I don't, you know, if he's sitting there eating a nut, that could take up almost the whole time that they're there. All right. So I, he, I ask him one question. He gets it right. He says, one and nut. I said, wait, you know, I asked him another question and he gets it right. And he says, one and nut with a little bit more intensity. And then, you know, the third question and he gets it right. And he goes, one and nut. Mm-uh-huh. And at this point, I'm just about ready to drop the tray because we had never trained him to put phonemes together. He'd been trained on the n and the t, but never on the uh sound. And here he's doing that. And I'm just going, good boy. And I'm smiling, I'm giving him a big nut. And I'm thinking, and meanwhile, I'm going, oh my, you know, we just got this incredible stuff that we have to start working on. But everything, other things interfered and we didn't get a chance to expand on that. But the point is he understood where we were going and jumped two steps ahead. Did he ever do anything similar to that again? Or was that the only time he did sort of this spelling? That was uh, the only time he did the spelling. But I mean, he did things like that. Sem- that kind of idea of, look, I know where you're headed. You know, this is boring. Let's go on to the next step. Um, a couple of times in the lab, it was quite shocking. It, it must be quite difficult because you, you want to make everything scientific, right? And he does this thing one time. Right. And then you're like, I want that to be reproducible, but it must take a lot of effort to get reproducibility out of it. Exactly. It, and that was the point. We would have had to start another project in the lab to study that. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't have the time. There were too many other things we were doing at that moment. I see. So what were you able to achieve in terms of vocabulary? Both, both did, he, did he have a, so this is Alex, your first parrot you had, who was the superstar, right? He, was he special or was it just that you had him for longer or do you think he was particularly gifted? Well, he was an, as I said before, he was an only bird for 15 years. And so he had this small army of people working with him exclusively. And we talked to him all day. Okay. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he was working all day or being trained all day, but we talked to him all day. You know, we'd come in and say, you know, hi, what do you want? You know, do you want a nut? Do you want, you know, what do you want? Do you want, what, you know, do you want banana? Do you want grape? You know, and he would tell us what he wanted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or he'd say he wants a, you know, a grape. And we'd say, well, color grape, because there's purple grapes and there's green grapes. Okay. And sometimes he'd say he want corn, and we say, okay, what color? Corn, what's color corn? Because we wanted him to work on the color yellow. All right. So we would just, you know, we'd work on things like that with him all day. And if he wanted attention, you know, which he did, he knew he had to talk to us. Um, you know, and it was really intense. But when we got Griffin. Okay, so now we're splitting time between birds, and Griffin never had that mm-hmm. incredible, that kind of, you know, intensity. He also, okay, we also were doing a study with Griffin because to be blunt, when you're in a university situation and trying to get tenure, um, just repro- now maybe, but not then. Just reproducing what you did wasn't going to get you papers, and it wasn't mm-hmm. going to get anything. So the idea was to try out different variations of that modeling technique to see actually what aspect of it was valuable and maybe that would help with children who have you know learning disabilities. So we started giving Griffin, you know, we tried things like what if we just used an audio tape instead of two people or what if we used a videotape of him watching two people or 
you know, variations on a theme. So he had an immense amount of suboptimal input. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, the, in, that, in the, that period of time when he would have been learning the most and most easily. Mm-hmm. And, and your newer parrots, are they, have you gone back to the original way that you were doing things with Alex? Or? We can't just because it was, I mean, I just haven't had the opportunity to, you know, basically lock myself and a few students in a room with a bird, you know, eight hours, eight to 10 hours a day. So even Athena, um, you know, we had one student doing a lot of work with her, say for a couple hours every morning, which was great. And she was beginning to acquire her vocalizations. It was two, one student all the time and two students some of the time. And then the student graduated hmm. and it sort of fell apart. We couldn't get another student to work that shift. And so she has a few vocalizations. But she just doesn't, she doesn't seem to care to talk. It's very interesting. She can, when she wants to, she can talk beautifully. Um, the other day, she, you know, we were trying to get her to say orange, which she didn't want to say, but she said the most perfect green I've ever heard from any parrot. <laughs> and that, then trying to get her to reproduce it was like, well, I've said it once. You know I can say it. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's very interesting. So there's some personality there that sort of can get in the way. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see what did, happens. Did Alex ever ask you questions? So you're there the whole time asking him questions. Did he ever uh, ask you about – I, I guess yeah. he was limited in what he could say because he could say shapes, uh, what things are made of, um, yeah. colors and numbers, yeah, right? Yeah, but That's he, could the four say, he can ask us, you know, what, what's that, what color, what shape? He could do mm-hmm. that, and he would. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's how he learned carrot. Um, you know, he didn't like vegetables. So I would, you know, sit there. I mean, as a snack, I would, ha- you know, sometimes bring in carrots or something to eat. I never even bothered giving it to him because I knew he would spit it in my face. And um, one time, it's a Saturday morning, I get a phone call from you know, a student, she says, where are the carrots? And I'm going, huh? And she says, he's asking for carrots. And I'm thinking back that Friday night, my students and I were eating this bag, you know, from this bag of carrots I'd brought in. And he kept saying, what's that? And I kept saying, carrot. And I'd give him a bite and he'd take a bite and he'd throw it at me. But he kept asking, what's that? And we kept saying, carrot, it's a carrot. And he had the word, already had the word key and parrot in his repertoire. Okay. And the next morning, he's going, want carrot, want carrot. Now, of course, he wasn't eating them. He just sort of would bite them and throw them. They were a toy for him. But it was like, whoa. You know, and he learned orange by asking us the color of the carrot. He learned gray by seeing himself in a mirror and asking what color. Um, so, yes, he, you know, he learned a lot of vocalizations. And he would... He would also put together vocalizations, so he would babble by himself. So, he, you know, after he learned gray, he'd sit there, you know, playing with it, and all of a sudden comes out grape, which, you know, we talked about grapes. When we fed him grapes, we said, here's a grape, but we didn't train it. But all of a sudden, he starts saying grape, and then grain, and cane, mm-hmm. and chain. Mm-hmm. That he's just, so it's like it's like his spelling almost, isn't it? He's like putting putting yeah. words together to construct. Did one that I'm kind of curious about. Um, so he he looked in a mirror and he saw himself and he asked, "What color?" 
And that's how he learned gray. Did he learn gray then faster than other uh, colors because he had this association? Or Well, it's also that he had, you know, he had words like it. So it wasn't mm-hmm. that hard for him to learn it. So it's it's not it's not necessarily it it doesn't necessarily indicate that um, he he had like a sense of self or something like this. Right. I mean, people it, it, it have could, claimed just... that. People have claimed that, and I'm I'm I don't because he had g the g sound from green and green. Okay, and he had a from paper. Mm. So you know, hearing gray. You know, it was very easy for him to put together the sounds already in his repertoire to learn it quickly. But would he, would he uh, pass the mirror test? Is that known for parrots? It's, it's really complicated because, okay, this is something that everybody's trying to figure out why birds, you know, do they pass the mirror test? There's one or two situations suggesting that, say, example, a magpie might... And then another person replicated the study and said, no, they're just working on the pro- proprioceptive feel of the tag on them and things like that. Um, one of the issues is that these birds see in the ultraviolet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so does a mirror, well, we know a, a glass mirror does not reflect in the ultraviolet. So who knows what they're seeing when they see themselves in a mirror. And that might be why they don't really act like they see themselves. Because, I mean, it would sort of be like you look in a mirror and you see this green lobby creature, you know, instead of you. (laughs) And you know what, I mean, you have some sense of what you look like in the sense that, you know, you can see your hands, okay, Mm -hmm. and things like that. And they can see their... They can see their feet, they can see their chest, and they look in the mirror and there's, you know, what is this thing? So we don't know. And there is, you know, there's some hope at some point that we can do some stuff. I mean, there's some some work being done. I don't want to go into it because it's not in my lab, but um, some suggestion that there was ways of, of getting around this and, and studying it. But, but because you can have this sort of back and forth, I'm not going to call it conversation, but this back and forth with your birds... Does this allow you to actually unlock the way that they see the world? So, so for, for instance, uh, c- can you sort of get an idea of what it is that you know how they perceive things, what their um, their what it is like to view in the ultraviolet? Yeah. You know, all these interesting questions because you can sort of ask them to a certain extent. Yeah. We started a study like that. We started um, collaborating with a colleague at Princeton on that just before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So hopefully when it's safe to travel again, because um, she has all this equipment that she could tell us exactly what colors are being, what colors these things that we see, for example, as orange, what they look like to the bird in the ultraviolet. I see. So so do, do you have situations where you would say, you know, what color is this? And you pick up a thing and you think it's green, but because it's also you yes. know, sending out. Okay, so so you can actually um, make a mistake with the parrot where you're the one making the error, not the parrot. Right, it, and we found, to them it looks. Yeah, we found that Griffin uh, Alex had a really tough time with things like orange, and particularly orange and purple, because uh, you know, and they didn't. What we thought was orange, I mean, who knows what he saw it in? And it's purple. I mean, even purple. You know, there are things that you you would call purple, and I would say, well, that looks more blue to me, or looks more red to me, or something like that. Um, so we basically got a 
you know, a bottle of non-toxic paint, you know, children's non-toxic paint. This is orange. And this is what you're, when you see this color, you're going to say orange. And we painted things that color. Okay. And that's how we got around it, you know, because that's how we had to get those colors. The same thing with purple. Um, so we had these colors in the lab, but we, you know, said, okay, I don't know what you're seeing, but whatever it is, you're going to call this thing orange. It must be so confusing for him because it, it, it'd be like if we had an alien who wanted us to have a separate word for blue and light blue, say, but we had no word for green. Uh, it'd be infuriating for us. Yeah, but, it? <laughs> you know, we eventually do. I mean, think about it. There are different, you know, different cultures split up the spectrum a little bit differently, too. So there's even with humans it's not it's not only what we see but how we label so that's a whole other another topic of conversation but so what what's their vocabulary like and is is their passive is their passive vocabulary significantly larger than their active one probably probably i think they understood more than they could state um, Griffin, you know, Griffin has far fewer words than, than Alex, but I think he understands a lot. Um, Alex had about, it was like 50, it was somewhere between 50 and a hundred different labels for things. Okay. And the question is, you know, the reason why it's that big is because do you consider, you know, um, things like, you know, a green key different from a rose key, or do you just say, well, he had the label key and then he had the, you know, seven color labels and, you know seven object shape labels and things like that. Okay. So, mm -hmm. but he had, you know, labels for colors, for shapes, for numbers. He had phrases like I want X and want to go Y where X and Y are appropriate object or location labels. Mm -hmm. And he never said, you know, want to go nut. I mean, he understood that want to, want to go chair, want to go back, want to go shoulder, things like that. And, you know, I want a nut, I want a cork. I want, you know, things like that. He understood. Mm -hmm. And if he learned a new label, whether he understood if it was a place or a thing and he put them in the right sentence frame. Mm -hmm. okay. So he would construct sentences that had never been said to him before uh, using the new labels that yeah. he had. Simple frames. I mean, they were, you know, they were simple sentence frames. It wasn't complicated sentences, but it's, I want X, want to go Y. I mean, there's a very, mm -hmm. it's, it's, Again, when you talk about the difference between language, you and I can construct a sentence that, you know, neither of us have ever heard before. But, mm -hmm. you know, his he had these little frames that he had heard the frames and he knew what slot to put new things into, which is a which is it's intelligence. No, I mean, it's pretty, pretty advanced, but it's nothing like what you and I are doing. So when you taught him um, three corner triangle, did you always ha have the same triangle? Like if, if, if you took a triangle that was of a different shape, for example, it wasn't isosceles, but it was a right angle or something. Would he also call that a, a three corner or? In, initially, no. Initially, it always was the same triangle because we wanted to get the idea of what it meant. Okay. So mm -hmm. they were slightly different sizes, but it was, mm -hmm. you know, basically a wooden triangle. Okay. And then we go to, say, a paper triangle or a rawhide triangle to make sure that he understood that it didn't have to be wood, okay? And then we could go to different, you know, you know, different types of triangles and things to make sure he understood it. Hmm. Did, did he have 
trouble? So he spent a lot of time with you and students. Did did he have trouble? So say for example, um, you and I both said the same word, but I've got a much deeper voice than you do. So would he would he struggle with the way that I pronounce a word, or would he sort of put them all in the same class? He was able to put them all in the same class to some extent. Okay, so when we had you know, it was very interesting when we had film crews come in from all over the world. So if the people from the film crew had really strong accents, then he really had trouble because, you know, it was just too weird. But pitch, no. Pitch was, and I think that's because when we trained him, we had, you know, male and female students working with him. Mm-hmm. So which he was, you know, adapted to the pitch. But a really strong accent could throw him off because it was like, you know, even with us, you know, a really strong accent will throw us off and try and understand what somebody's saying. Are there any tests that you, because I imagine, okay, you, you want to find out some particular thing, whether they, you know, can understand this or that. And so are there any tests that you developed that you're particularly proud of? You know, is there any... Um, any one test that really stands out in your mind? Let's see. Um, that's a good question. Well, there's some stuff we've been doing with Griffin, and they don't have to do with language per se, although we think that his understanding of symbolic representation helps him on this. Okay. But we've been doing this really interesting study on inference by exclusion. And it's it's quite fascinating. So I didn't develop it all by my by myself. I worked with colleagues on this. Um, so it's basically adapting her her study to Griffin. But it's really one of these fascinating things. So there's the original two cup, okay, exclusion, which um, it's based on work by people like David Premack and Joseph Call has adapted it too. But the basic idea is. You show the animal, you have two different colored cups, and you put, say, a blue jelly bean under one cup and a green jelly bean under the other cup, and they see that. And then you put up a barrier, and you take away one of the jelly beans from under the cup. You remove the barrier and say, look, I have the green jelly bean. And then you say, if you want a jelly bean, go find it. So they have to remember which cup had which jelly bean, and infer by the fact that, well, the green one's taken away. If I want one, i got to remember where the blue one was. Okay. Well, it turns out, you know, there's some simpler other explanations, like avoid the cup that was empty or go to the cup next to the empty cup, things like that. Mm-hmm. So what, what Susan Carey and her students designed was what's called the four-cup exclusion, which is, say, two sets of two cups. And we gave this to Griffin. And so the deal is you have A, B, and C, D, and you put up a barrier, and you show, look, I've got a big nut, and I'm putting it on this side, and you show them, you know, it's under A, B. I have another nut. Look, I'm putting it on this side. It's under C, D. Okay. Then you remove the barrier. So at this point, all they know is that there's 50-50 on the A's and 50-50 on the A, B, 50-50, C, D. Then you show them, look, A is empty. Where are you going to get the nut? Well, okay. you know, it's like, okay, it's 100% under B, right? Mm-hmm. Well, kids have to be 
to get it really, really well, I mean, like not just a little bit above chance, but really above chance, they got to be almost five years old. Griffin aced this completely. All right. So then we decided, and this is where, you know, the stuff that I was doing comes in. I said, well, you know, maybe he's just going to the cup next to the empty cup. So we decided to make him gamble. To make him go to the other side. So he likes nuts, but he loves Skittles. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think they're the worst horrible thing in the world, but this bird will kill for a Skittle. So the idea was, okay, you got to putting a nut on this side and a Skittle on this side. And you show them, you know, A is empty. You have 100% chance of a nut, but you got a 50-50% chance of getting that Skittle that you really, really want. So we put in just a few of those trials into the, you know, mixed in with the normal trials, and he gambled because he really <laughs> wanted that Skittle, okay? And if he gambled and won, he'd gamble the next time one of those trials came up. If he lost, he might wait a couple of trials before he'd gamble again. Hmm. So he really, you know, understood what was going on there. It turns out there's some other, uh, you know, other low-lying concepts, and we're doing some other studies to, to, you know, nail it down even further. But, I mean, this was a really fun thing that we came up with to see what he was doing. How noisy are your tests? So, so you know, I imagine, because they're quite, in, it sounds like they're quite intelligent, so they must get bored sometimes. So yes. when, you, when you're asking them to do a test, the, you know... You're never going to get 100% from them. Yeah, so that's my question. So like if, if, if they are responding, you know, if I, if I read one of your papers and it said, you know, they were correct when they said, you know, this word or did this task 80% of the time, should I infer that 20% of the time they were confused or, or you know, 10% of the time they were just bored and 10% of the time they were annoyed or how should I read the numbers? Well, you know, it's generally annoyed or bored or something like that because, um, you know, they're so far above chance that mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, so statistically significant. It's not mm-hmm. like it's, you know, 0.05. It's usually 0.001 or 0.0001, okay? Mm-hmm. So it, that suggests that they really are. And again, you know, with Alex, I mean, it was very, he, was, he was much more obvious about this. So imagine I'm giving him a test where there are six possible answers, okay? Mm-hmm. For like example, you know, what color? Six different colors. So I say, what color? And he gives me the wrong color. Okay, so you say he doesn't know the wrong color. But I try and I say, okay, I ask him again and again and again. And, you know, six times, he gives me five wrong colors in a row. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, by statistics... There's no way he can give me five wrong answers in a row unless he knows the correct answer and he's avoiding it. Mm. And we would run this just to show that that was something that he was doing. It was like, I know this is blue. You know that it's blue. I know that you know that you know that I know that it's blue. Why am I having to say this blue? You know, and I'm going, because I need statistical significance and I need 60 trials on this task. So you do this, you know. Um, and it's like... Uh, so, yeah. Are there some days that you go into the lab and he just 
he would just completely ref- or Griffin or Athena yeah. would they do they just say not no. today yeah so they they know how to say no well Griffin has Alex and Griffin both have a little noise um, but basically you set up the tray and you put it up and they look at you and they turn around and they start to preen okay <laughs> and they just basically go and you know and you go hey look next don't you want to work and they look at you and go tickle which means they want you to, you know, help them preen or something like that. It's very clear. There are times when they just do not want to work. Do they end up getting like diabetic or anything from just all the Skittles that well, <laughs> you have to okay, bribe them the with? The Skittles, that's what's a, you know, that's an interesting question because it's almost, we so rarely do that because I mean, when we were doing that study, we took Griffin in for his annual checkup and the that literally said, this bird is borderline diet, you know, parrot diabetes. What are you feeding him? We said, we're doing this one study and we only have two more trials and we promise we won't give him any more Skittles after this is done. But I mean, yes, it's, you know, these things are, you know, we, you have to watch. They're supposed to eat, you know, parrot food and not not human junk. But, um, you know, this was such a, such a chance to do such an incredible study. And we really didn't realize how much sugar he was getting but when you think about it, okay one skittle for him is like our eating a our eating a hundred or 150 of them it's like know, a, a soccer ball size skittle for me yeah you know i mean it's like a whole big bag <laughs> of them you know in one sitting i mean it's it's ridiculous so yeah but so griffin was able to compete at the level of sort of a five-year-old child in this one task is there something like um an iq or some like number that you can put down for general intelligence for but you know would since griffin could compete at that level on this particular task would you also expect him to do as well against five-year-olds in other tasks or is it very specific well it turns out he's as good as a five-year-old on um, basically a probability task that Piaget gave young children. He's better than six to eight-year-olds on a visual working memory task. Okay. Um, a couple of other tasks that we're in the process of looking at. So the answer is, you know, on a lot of the tasks we've given him so far, yeah. Okay. I mean, he does the marshmallow test. Do you know what that is? Is it, this is the one where you, you see whether they can um, uh, wait for a greater, you know. Right. I mean, what, he, what are you what are you testing for there? For executive function, basically, do they have the you know ability to sit there and say, well, if I wait, you know, think it through. There's a really nice nut here, but if I wait, I'm going to get a lot more nuts. It's worth waiting for. Okay, and he does it. How he long can you get him to wait for? Fifteen minutes. Oh, that's almost torture. <laughs> it is almost torture for for both of us because we're sitting, you're standing there, watching the clock, you know, tick away, and you're going, "Please don't eat this. Please don't eat. This. Please don't eat." This. And you can't look at him. You can't look at him. You can only look at him through a camera or through the corner of your eye, you know. And he's sitting there, and he's preening, and he's falling asleep, and he's squawking. It's like you know, he's trying to distract himself because it's so boring. But he knows, you know, I'm going to get this big batch of nuts if I can wait just a little bit longer. How do you tell him that in that? How do you give him that information that you will get to if you wait? Like, how do you teach that? So the thing is, that's one of the beautiful things of working with an animal that has language of sorts, you know, symbolic representation. So 
he already had some comprehension of the label weight. We had never trained him on it. But, you know, when I come in in the morning, he wants immediately to climb on me. But I have to take off my outer clothing. I have to put on some hand sanitizer. So it's weight. Wait, I'll, you know, be with you or not. Mm. We give them cooked grains every day for lunch and for dinner. And they're, when we come, they come out of the microwave, they're too hot. So that has to wait for a minute or two until they cool down. So, you know, they see this bowl of stuff that they want. And we go, wait, wait, you know, just wait a couple of minutes, okay? So they understand, to some extent, the concept from that. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, just like little kids, I mean, you know, you take a four-year-old and they understand they have to wait their turn to play. They have to wait for, you know, ice cream for a certain time. I mean, you know, they understand something about waiting. Okay. The question for both the parent and the kids is, would they choose to wait in one of these Mm -hmm. situations? I mean, they all under, they understand something about that concept, but will they Mm -hmm. voluntarily choose to wait? And that's what you're testing. And so you put, you know, you show them, here's, you know, a nut. You can have this nut now, but if you wait, you can have the three nuts. And you leave him with the one nut. You hold the three nuts. You know, he can see them, but he can't get them. And if he waits, you know, the little timer goes off and then he gets to eat the three nuts. But so so you, you, you show him the three nuts so you put one in front of him and you hold three and you say, wait, and then he associates that word with the three that he will get. But how does he know that not to eat the other one? How does he know that? Oh, I see. So so the weight is associated to him eating the thing in front of him. Yeah. It's it's still a bit complicated. How does he infer that? Well, we, we, ma- be- we modeled it. We did that. You know, we did our modeling like we showed him with, I had a student who modeled it. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, not, not a lot, but I just showed, you know, we showed them two or three times with the student, you know, if she waited, she got the three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. So you, you use the same training technique that you would just for learning a word or for, right. uh, I mean, for well, any, it isn't, yeah. it isn't training per se. It's, it's modeling. It's just demonstrating. Which is different mm-hmm. from training, because training is like when you have a dog. Okay, you know the trick with the dog. You put a, you know, a, a, a what do you call it, a biscuit on its nose, and you train it to sit there until you give it the release, and then it can flip over and get the biscuit. Okay, I mean that's training. Okay, mm-hmm. it has no option. It's trained to do something. It's not voluntarily waiting. Okay. It's, it's, you know, a hard level training because if it doesn't, if it doesn't wait, you know, everything, the biscuit goes away completely. Mm -hmm. So how did you, how did you distinguish a a weight as a command from weight as a, you know, well, because how how did you distinguish that? Well, because I mean, basically if he, if we did, we could did some controls. So we did, we give him three and we tell him to wait for one. (laughs) <laughs> so if it was a command, he would wait no matter what, right? Because I'm commanding mm-hmm. him to wait. But he would take one look at the three, look at us and go, you're nuts. And he'd just eat the three. <laughs> so you'd give him a worse deal and he'd be like, I'm not taking the bad deal. Right. Okay, that's quite clever. So so it, it seems like, 
Okay, so so it seems in certain tasks that he's at least as intelligent as say a five year old or even a young child uh, um, of some age, and I, I guess that also means that on some function uh, tests he would also be more intelligent than say people who may be mentally disabled, let's say. And so when it comes to so the question I want to ask uh, relates to personhood. <laughs> so you know, uh, is intelligence the only thing that's important there or, or is there something additional that humans have that that sort of exclude uh uh animals like alex from from gaining personhood we have no idea i mean this is something that people have been you know for as long as i've been in the field people have been trying to figure out I mean, there's a lot of people who are looking at the, you know, what's called the neural, what is it, NCC, the neural, it's not the word, they don't call center, but it's the neural, let's call it the center, but the neural center of consciousness, neural correlative consciousness, okay, NCC. They're trying to find what it is in humans, and are these things, do these same things exist in non-humans, and it's really hard in birds because their brains are constructed so differently. I mean, when I talk about having a cortical-like area, it doesn't look like a cortex. I mean, if you look at our cortex, you see all these, you know, the, what a brain looks like. It's We call it sulci and gyri, but it's all those, you know, ups and downs and everything that you see. A bird's brain looks like a blob of jello. That's all it okay. looks like, you know. And it turns out that when you do the neurophysiology and the neuroanatomy, it's got the same bits and pieces that our brain has. It just doesn't mm -hmm. look like it. And the connections in are not always exactly the same. They're similar. So, for example, for vocal learning birds, we have seven centers of, that are for vocal learning, and they have seven centers. And they're actually connected in somewhat similar ways. Not identical, but quite similar. Okay, But, I mean, it's still blobs of stuff and co compared to what you know we look like in our brains it just doesn't look the same so figuring out you know what's the same in their brain and what's in our brain is is not easy i mean when i started giving lectures in the 80s on the work alex was doing i mean there was always somebody in the audience who you know raised their hand saying but they don't have any cerebral cortex how can they do what what you're saying you know there's no cortical area and I'd say, you're the neurobiologist. You find it because these are my data. Okay, this is what the bird is doing. I don't know how he's doing it. You go find the bit of brain that's responsible for it. 2005, Nature Reviews Neuroscience, Jarvis et al., where et al. is 20 other researchers, they finally published a, you know, what's called a, you know, an axis of the, you know, neural area of the bird brain basically showing which these bits and pieces, you know, correspond to all the bits and pieces in our brain. But it took like 20 something years. Hmm. But I suppose my question goes along the lines of, you know, okay, we're having this conversation, but uh, hopefully there's never a point in time when you're holding my brain in your hands uh, <laughs> to, to look at the ridges and, you know, uh, see its structure and so on. Um, so you don't really know. I you only you expect that my brain has all the usual features just through our interactions. And so the question is, you know, just through if you didn't know anything about what a 
bird's brain looked like and you were just interacting with them and and they're displaying all these different uh, sorts of intelligence these cognitive abilities is is that enough is their behavior enough to say look this species maybe whales maybe chimpanzees maybe parrots this this species really should be considered uh as oh this animal really should be considered as a person in a certain sense but that's you know that's really tough i mean think about the turing test um, and think about AI and think about robots and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's really hard to figure out what is this essence that we call consciousness. I mean, there are people who think it's an epiphenomenon. So um, it's, it's, it's not a simple, you know, David Chalmers called it the hard question for a good you know, good reason. We really don't know. We really don't know. I mean, it's certainly when you work with these animals on a daily basis, you treat them as conscious beings because it's almost impossible not to. But again, you know, people treat their dogs as conscious beings. People treat their goldfish, you know, some of them as conscious beings. Um, can I prove it? At this stage, no, I can't. And neither can anybody else completely prove it. You, you, People are writing really interesting papers suggesting these things, but, you know, we can't yet prove it. I think the artificial intelligence um, idea is interesting because you could have a case where y- you could develop an artificial intelligence that's much more intelligent than a human or, or appears to be. Um, eventually, maybe we'll have a general artificial intelligence that's more intelligent than humans, but maybe you could make the argument that they don't suffer. And so, you know, there are other qualities right. that humans right. have and that animals have. Right. And that's, um, you know, and that's again, I mean, look, Descartes did not think that animals could suffer. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we know they can. Now, so then there's but, the classic question, um, it, you know, is, is there a point at which an animal is so intelligent that when you kill them, it's considered murder? That's the classic question, right? Right. right. And, you know, look, I mean, talk to any vegan and they'll say yes. So so we, we spoke about how self-aware Alex was. Did, did they... And he, he would say sorry, but you, you, you suggested that he didn't have any contrition. Does it make sense to talk about uh, morals and ethics for animals? You know, do they have... I mean, look, if you look at the way they behave in the wild, there is some kind of social structure there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just, just I mean, read read a lot of the stuff that Franz de Waal works on the, chimp, you know, chimpanzees. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there that it's very hard to differentiate from what would go on in a human society, all right? Um, these, are, these are really difficult questions, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, fussy about, ignore, you know, dancing around them. Um, it's just really hard to try to figure out, you know, what exactly is going on, what are their, you know, just because their morals might not match up with our morals doesn't mean that they're amoral, right? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, look at we have different societies, and different societies have different moralities as mm-hmm. to what they consider okay, right? I mean, you know, but we don't consider, I mean, well, some people consider if it's not their own morality, it's amoral. But, you know, most people would just consider that, yes, there are different types of, you know, societal mores, let's put it that way. Um, it's it's interesting. You made me think of, um, okay, so early on when you had Alex and Griffin together and Alex was the dominant bird, I imagine that you'd have situations where Alex may bully uh, Griffin or, or Griffin would sort of defer to Alex. And, and so the question you could ask, I guess this is a question you could never answer really, but, you know, is it a moral position, you know, that, you know, Alex eats first or... Um, you know, is, 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 you know, you, you might be able to construct their hierarchy in, in, using morality, right? I, I'm not really sure what words to use here. Right. But, um, I mean, we don't know what words to use here. We know that we know that dominance hierarchies exist. Okay. We know they exist in the wild. I mean, it's like the stronger animal gets more resources and they're more likely to breed. And so they're likely to have stronger offspring. Okay, so there's this... Might is right. Yeah, well, it's, it's <laughs> genetics. I mean, you know, it's just the, you know, you want the best genetics in the next generation, things like that. Um, but how does that get into other systems? I mean, it's it's really a tough, tough... Call. I guess also you probably don't want to answer these questions because I, I don't mean in the context of this interview, but uh, just more generally... You know, at the end of the day, you also need funding. And, and once you start asking these questions, you start dipping into philosophy and things that are sort of... You, I'm, I'm guessing you already have some difficulty convincing people that... So let, let me... Let me let me um, Rephrase that. Let me say the following. <laughs> let me re- rephrase it. So, you know, your research... It's really captivating for public audiences. P- people love to hear about the story of Alex, and uh, you know, uh, uh, some of my friends knew who Alex was before I, uh, you know, was going to have this discussion with you. Um, but on the other hand, I, I know that at various times you've had some trouble getting uh, funding, right? And so I- I'm wondering if uh, the situation would be made more difficult if you start thinking seriously about things like morals and ethics and animals, you know, these are things that you can't really uh, do measurements with, right? It it sounds like it's very important for you to be as scientific as possible and and do tests where you can really pull out numbers. Yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're applying for a grant from the National Science Foundation, they want data. Now, that's Mm -hmm. basically what it's on. And I mean, it's hard enough, you know, trying to explain to them that, the data that you're getting that is, you know, I mean, you're getting this from a brain the size of a shelled walnut. It's the question that you asked me at the beginning. Um, and you're trying to convince these people. I mean, I remember being at a conference, 1986, it was the International Primatological Congress. And I was the only person there who wasn't studying primates. And I was in the one session on comparative cognition. And I was, you know, comparative. It's like apes versus Alex, Okay. And I get up and I, you know, <laughs> I give my talk, and it was on the concept of same and different. And the important thing is that same and different is not identity versus non-identity. 
Okay, identity versus non-identity is very simple. You know, is this the, exactly the same as that identity versus non-identity? Mm -hmm. But same and different is much more complicated because you can have things that are the same but also different. They're the same color but different mm -hmm. shape. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I did based on some work that David Premack had done was to teach Alex same concepts, same and different, so he could look at something and say whether they were same or different with respect to color, shape, matter, or say none if nothing mm -hmm. were same or different. So I present this work and this, you know, I'll call him the silverback male, okay? The senior senior primatologist in the group stands up and I'm going like, oh, you know, okay, here it comes. And he says, <clears throat> you mean to tell me that, that your bird, and he says it rather pejoratively, is doing the same thing that premax apes are doing? And I wanted to say, yeah, backwards and in heels, because we actually had done a slightly more complicated test than premax. And but I didn't say that. I figured that would, you know, and I said, yes, sir. And he goes, oh, and he sits down. And it was like the audience is going, oh, you know, it's like she's doing this stuff. I mean, it was so hard for them to believe that this work was, you know, was real. And again, it was one bird. You know, I didn't have a whole flock of them. And, mm -hmm. and you have to argue that, you know, this one bird could do it and therefore the species could do it. But I'm sure that there are differences amongst birds. And again, again, personalities. As I said, Athena is extremely smart. But her attitude is, you know, girls just want to have fun. I mean, she's just, you know, she'll work when she wants to. And when she works, she's just so on target. But half the time, it's just like, no, I want to chew paper. I want to preen. I don't. I don't want anything to do with you. So, is is there a lack of funding in general for um, animal cognition? I guess you'd call it. Yes, I mean it's a very, very difficult field to get funding for. There are some places where there's lots of funding and lots of appreciation. So, you know, Austria. Okay, they have a. Mm -hmm. You know, the University of Vienna has a department of cognitive ethology. Okay. They put in millions of euros to graduate student funding for animal cognition. Mm -hmm. um, University of St. Andrews has a really beautiful program, okay, in animal cognition. Most other schools, if you're lucky, there's maybe one person in the whole university doing it. And getting funding for it is really hard. I mean, that's one of the reasons a lot of my colleagues are now looking at dog cognition. Because they mm -hmm. don't have to, you know, run a lab. They basically mm -hmm. can use, you know, have people bring their dogs in and test the dogs. And they don't have to, you know, have animals living on the premise and taking care of them 24-7. Because um, that's one of the big expenses. Um, you know, we're not, we're not curing cancer, okay? We're not, at this point, we're not curing AIDS, Um you know, to try to explain to people that, okay, but we're studying basic levels of intelligence. We're basic studying motivation. We're studying things that, you know, could maybe help you when you're trying to teach children. But mm -hmm. it's like, no, 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 no. If we want to work with children, we're just going to work with children. And there's, there's a point to it. But, you know, if we're going to understand the evolutionary bases of our behavior, 
we have to study animals because mm-hmm. we don't know where our, you know, the origins of our behavior unless we study mm-hmm. them in animals. And that's why this is so important. And again, if you're, you know, you want to share a world with non-humans, mm-hmm. the only way to understand what they need is to understand their cognitive processes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, we we have a world that is between, you know, climate change and all sorts of, you know, distra- other, you know, extractive industries and things. We're, we're tearing our world apart. We're losing species. I mean, gray parrots are now CITES one endangered species. 1995, we could have told them that we were trying to tell them that this was going to happen given the level of poaching and the level of habitat destruction, but nobody wanted to listen because there were still, you know, flocks of a thousand grays in Africa. But hey, 30 years and their CITES one endangered. Well, it took, you know, 20 years for them to be CITES one endangered. Um, so we need to learn about these creatures that we're, with whom we're sharing the world. But it's really a hard sell. In terms of, uh, I mean, this might also be one of the reasons why there's this, you know, this might be why it's difficult for people working on apes to believe that Alex could do the things he could do, right? Because there's competition. Um, you're, you take funding, I suppose, that they may yeah. get. Oh, yeah. Is, I mean, is that an element? You know, or? Yeah. I mean, you know, one colleague was very blunt about it. He didn't say it to my face. He said it to another one of his colleagues. And, of course, the second colleague was a friend of mine, and I heard it. Um, that's true. It's also, I mean, think about the whole point where, you know, humans, a lot of humans feel they have dominion over everything else. Okay. And... You know, it's what you got back into what you were sort of talking about. You know, what, how much right do we have to do animal experimentation on animals? Now, there's a difference between talking to an animal and sticking electrodes in its brain and slicing and dicing. But, you know, experiments, do we have the right to do this? Do we have the right to eat them? You know, do we have the right to test drugs on them? Mm-hmm. There are all these questions that come up. That. Do you have problems with? Uh, sorry for interrupting. Do you do you have uh, problems with animal rights activists then, with your own work? Or I, I personally don't, because people who are animal rights who have visited the lab have written papers saying, you know, this is if you're going to study animals, hey, these birds are basically treated like kindergartners, you know. Um, so they realize that you know we're not doing anything bad, all bad or stressful or anything to them, but. Um, but I have been at, I have been at a conference where somebody inappropriately accused me of doing invasive research mm-hmm. and, you know, made it very clear that what he thought about me and my research inappropriately, but, you know. What did he mean by invasive? Well, they said that, that, you know, we were slicing and dicing parrot brains. Oh. And, you know, we were not. Do you have enough parrots to do that? (laughs) Hey, these birds, you know, right now a gray parrot is 
going for six over six thousand dollars a baby gray is costing over six thousand mm-hmm. dollars there's no way that you know people are going to do that kind of research on a creature that costs six thousand mm-hmm. dollars um to be blunt but um i mean the people who are doing some neurobiology on them are basically trying to find birds that are at the you know that are that need to that need to be euthanized for health reasons I see. And they're basically sitting there. So as soon as the bird goes, they immediately get permission and take it and do some studies on the brain and things mm-hmm. like that. You're you're also involved uh, with Meti, right? I, I, I was I was reading the messaging extraterrestrials. Oh, was... yes, yes. Well, the idea is that. I mean, to be blunt, if somebody's going to talk to E.T., those of us who are already talking to aliens on the planet should be the ones involved. What what role do you play there? You're, you're an advisor, are you, on how yeah, to go just about... Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, we'll, you know, I don't know that anything's ever going to happen, but yes, you know, it's the idea of the fact that, that there are not just I, but a bunch of us who work on animal communication, you know, have some skills of looking at different ways of of communication i mean to be blunt you know communication amongst animals it's not just vocalizations i mean it's you know it's pheromones it's you know body signals it's it's a very complicated system and we need people who are aware of all the different ways that communication can happen if we're going to you know possibly uncover some kind of, you know, ET type creature. So have you made recommendations for the sort of messages that should be sent if messages will be sent or how, how does your, uh, how do you advise? What, what role do you play? So far, all this is, is a, you know, book that is yet to be published where we present our ideas. Okay. Um, we're still waiting for the book to get published. It's been a couple of years now. It's been sitting on the editor's desk. So, are you able to share any of the tantalizing ideas, or this is before pub- publication? Hush, hush. No, it's just. I mean, we just we basically say, look, this is what we found in non-humans. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, if you find some other creature, we have these skills that we can uh, use, and that's you know, that's basically what it is at this point. Um, no, nobody has come to us the way the Carl Sagan, you know, golden <laughs> disc type thing. Or at least they haven't come to me. Maybe they've come to some other people in the in the group. So um, I, I want to um, uh, wrap this conversation up. And before before I do that, I have some. I have one sort of out of left field question, and then a few questions looking towards the future. Okay. Um, so I apologize if this is a little bit. Uh, left field, but I, I'm kind of curious how someone with your expertise and experience would answer the question. So, uh, do you know about the blue fox experiments, where they, uh, or is it th- these fox experiments in in Russia, where they uh, tamed foxes over many generations? It's blue foxes, right? So the question is: Let's say, for example, uh, you wanted to do a similar experiment where, over many generations, you breed for a certain characteristic, and in this case it's intelligence. So say, for example, you wanted to build up a a species that is as intelligent as possible. And I give you, you know, a couple hundred generations. Um, 
the question is, how would you go about doing that? What animal uh, would you choose and what characteristics would you breed for? Well, I mean, first of all, with the foxes, you can do things like artificial insemination. You can, you know, it's, I mean, when you get intelligent creatures, you can't just make them breed. So right away, you have an issue right there. Okay. They might not like each other. They might not want to breed with one another. Um, so I'm going to nix it right from the beginning. I mean, it's not, it's not simple. I mean, even when you look at, you look at flocks of birds in the wild, all right, Hmm. they, you know, the intelligent ones like the parrots, they mate for life and they find their mates through whatever process they go for. And when one of their mates dies, they don't just randomly hook up with the next, you know, free bird available okay they oft they often mourn and i won't say mourning in the sense that we engage in mourning but they you know they they don't do normal behaviors for a while and they don't immediately you know remate and and stuff so i just i find it the more intelligent the creature the harder it would be to design something like that mm-hmm. so you're saying uh, morals and ethics would get in the way primarily. I think so. I think so, yeah. But let's say they were taken off the table and, and you're... Uh... <laughs> I mean, you can't. That's the whole point. You can't. Hmm. You can't take these things off the table. And and what levels of intelligence? I mean, you know, what... I mean, in, in the individual parrot species, okay, are particularly good at different things. So if you mm-hmm. look at, you know, cockatoos are great at tool use, all right? Mm-hmm. It's a different type of intelligence than what we get with greys. Greys are pretty crummy at tool use. They don't, you know, mm-hmm. they're just not, I mean, when you even give them the option to play with things, they play with them, but not to nearly the extent that, for example, cockatoos or even macaws do. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, what what do you choose for? It's, you know... It's it's not something that's a simple simple game. Hmm. Then let me ask. Let's say you could ask your birds any question, and you'll get uh, a sensible response that makes sense. So now it's not just what color, but uh, you can ask right. any question. What Ooh. do you wish you could ask them? Interesting. That is very interesting. Actually, I think I would ask what would make them happy. It's very consistent with your last answer. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you be upset if they just said grape or something in response? Probably. But then I would say, well, it has something to do with the number of the amount of, you know, vocabulary that they have to an- with which they could answer. So. Hmm. So then looking towards the future, in the field of, if you had your dream scenario unfold for the field of animal cognition, what would it look like? What, 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 what do you hope uh, the future looks like for oh, your field? What I would love is that if there were several institutes of animal behavior, you know, around universities, that every big university had an institute of animal behavior and would have the funding and the resources to have 
people, you know, a lot of people at each of these universities looking at, you know, and I'd say animal behavior, not necessarily even animal cognition, but of animal behavior, of which cognition would be one aspect. So that the that students coming in would understand that this is a viable field, it's an important field, and that it's a supportive field. And it's something that we need to study. Escaped Sapiens. <laughs>